Okay, thanks for being here. My name is Kevin Conover. If you're listening locally, we're down here in Southern California. We broadcast on KPraise, 1210 AM, and um, also on FM 106.1 in North County. And then, of course, we're all over the world um, on streaming uh, live on the web as uh, on social media and other platforms. Um, so my guest today is Dr. Petrovich. Um, if you know anything about him, um, he was very involved in Is Genesis History. Uh, that's where I first got to know about him. But he has an earned PhD from the University of Toronto. He has a major in Syro-Palestinian archaeology, a first minor in ancient Egyptian language, and a second minor in ancient Near Eastern religions. So he knows what he's talking about. He was also formerly the academic dean and professor at, at Novosibirsk, if I'm saying that correctly, uh, Biblical Theological Seminary in Siberia, Russia. And so, um, uh, Dr. Petrovich, I don't know um, how you feel about what's going on or uh, over in um, Ukraine and Russia, or if you have any uh, direct ties there after, after uh, being a, pro a professor and dean over there. Um, ha has that impacted anybody you know? Um, it, it hasn't adversely impacted people I know. In Siberia, it's far away from all of the conflict, and so there's really not, not much that they have to suffer through. But certainly uh, my family, we have friends and um, you know, people who are dear to us in both Russia and Ukraine. Uh, we almost were, were going to go to Ukraine for our ministry. We ended up in the last minute switching over to Siberia, Russia. Mm. But uh, yeah, my heart's very heavy with everything that's going on. And uh, yeah, lots of deep feelings uh, of pain. Uh, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, we've been praying. I pray almost every day for the people over in Ukraine uh, with my students um, over at Christian um, with uh, where I work at Christian high school associated with pastor Jeremiah Shadow Mountain Community Church. And so um, we are praying they're raising funds that are sending uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars over to uh, Ukraine to support Ukraine and help them. And so um, uh, our hearts are, are also breaking for the people over there. It's just a horrible tragedy. It is. Um, well, um, also, um, Dr. Petrovich, uh, he's the author of two uh, books, very significant books. He's the author of the world's oldest alphabet, Hebrew as the language of the proto-consonantal script, that's a mouthful, and Hebrews, new evidence for Israelites in Egypt from Joseph to the Exodus. Um, and that just came out in 2021. Is that right, Dr. Petrovich? Yes. Origins of the Hebrews just came out in December of 2021. Um, it's been a, a whirlwind since then. Uh, just about a thousand books have been bought by people already, which is, Oh, amazing. that's fantastic. Yeah. My first book, it took three years for a thousand to sell, but wow. this one in three months, a thousand have sold. So it's oh my very, gosh, very exciting. What's going on. What is it? What is it about the, the book that's, that's driving so much interest? Well, I think it's that it's, it's the first time anyone has ever attempted in history uh, to, to even address, let alone to, to try to pull off presenting evidence for the Israelites in Egypt, for the period that the Bible describes as 430 years that they lived there before the Exodus took place. So, and I think a lot of the interest too is that um, certainly one of the most important stories in the Bible, and definitely the most important story in ancient, um, in the history of the, of the Jewish people, ancient times and modern times, is the Exodus. I mean, look at Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments, look yeah. at uh, Disney's um, Prince of Egypt. So, um, that in itself demonstrates the huge interest that there is in all of these kinds of, event, of events. So um, the book really kind of scratches or, or, or uh, yeah, scratches an itch that nobody else has really tried to scratch before. 
Yeah, and, and of course, this is uh, incredibly important to both Christians, Jews, and uh, even Muslims, um, who are all very much interested in the history of um, what happened in the Exodus. Uh, and so for our listeners who are new to this subject, um, share with us, you know, in brief, the, the dispute that's taken place over, um, you know, whether the, the Jews were in Egypt. Because if you're a biblical Christian who's just not in tune with what's happening in the academic world, um, you just think, oh, yeah, this is what happened. But but this has been in dispute forever. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. And, and this is one of the reasons why this book and, um, and the evidence for it uh, in it is so important because um, university professors around the world have been for decades and probably over a century, if not close to two centuries, have been criticizing uh, biblical history. Um, they have a lot of areas of attack, but one of the areas of greatest attack is this whole idea of you know, the sojourn in Egypt because there's really never been a case that's been presented before. Mm. So they're, you know, um, they're attempting to, um, so what I've done is, is, is kind of, you know, stumble into all of this evidence that, that demonstrates um, that the Exodus took place in 1446 BC, the er, what's called the early Exodus view and not in the 13th century BC. Yeah. That's the view of um, scholarship today, the, the majority of scholarship. But the, the irony is that, that the middle of the 15th century BC was the time honored position until a, an archeologist of the 20th century named William Albright came along and he had a really dynamic personality and he was very authoritative. And he demanded that uh, it had to have occurred in the 13th century BC because we have no evidence of Israelites running around in Canaan from 1400 to 1200 BC. So because of that, it has to be a late exodus. And that kind of led to a whole change in the paradigm. And then Cecil B. DeMille picked it up and he set Ten Commandments movie in the 13th century BC. So that's kind of the, the crux of the, of the dispute. Sorry, can you hear me there? Now I can hear you. Sorry about that. So you're so what you're doing is you're pushing that back to uh, the biblical timeframes is what you're doing. You're making the case. Exactly. And what I'm doing is I'm taking and I'm not the only one to do this, of course, but I'm taking literally the, the reference in first Kings six one that says in the four hundred and eightieth year after the Exodus, Solomon began the work on the temple. Right. So if you take that number, literally, it means four hundred and seventy nine years and change pocket change backwards from the time that the temple starts being worked on. And that's where you can, can sink your, your teeth into the right date for the Exodus. And if you take that literally, you know, everybody knows that it's 967 BC. Um, there, there's all kinds of evidence that proves this, but 967 is the right year for the beginning of the building on the temple. So 479 plus 967 is 1446 BC. And, and that's the very year of, of the Exodus. So I'm taking that literally. People who hold to the 13th century BC uh, Exodus view, they have to take that number 480th, which by the way, is not an, a cardinal number. It's an ordinal number. So it's not an even 480, it's 479 plus. Mm. And, and they're taking that number though, a, 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 um, a, an ordinal number, and they're interpreting it allegorically. So that's a huge problem hermeneutically now that, that they've kind of fallen prey to. When you begin to take text that's meant to be read literally and you begin to read it allegorically. Yeah. And so, so along those same lines, you know, um, 
when when people are arguing that uh, are people actually arguing that it's a different time frame that the Hebrews were in in um, Egypt, or are they arguing that they weren't in Egypt at all? Well, there uh, there are plenty of people in in each of those camps, Kevin. Um, certainly, it's the liberal scholars and it's the the atheists who are telling us it never happened, and these are the ones who are dominating the. Uh, the classrooms in in our universities around the world, but then there are Christian um, scholars who have you know PhDs. Some of them have a background in e Egyptology, others don't, and they're telling us that uh, the Exodus did happen, but it had to happen in the 13th century BC because um, we don't see the Israelites you know ev much evidence of them as they're running around in in the early uh, part that that um, they would have to be there if there's an early Exodus. Mm. Okay, and so. And so um, when you say they don't see the evidence of them running around, uh, how are they missing the evidence? You're, you're arguing there's plenty of evidence. They're arguing there, there is no evidence. Where, where, where's the? Well, my, my book is mainly dealing with um, the period that the Israelites were in Egypt. But, but the area that they're, they're talking about is after the, uh, the Exodus, after the 40 years wandering in the desert, and then the entry into the land in what would be, according to the early Exodus view, 1406 BC, they're saying uh, around 1400 and the two centuries after, we're not seeing evidence of Israelites there. But here, here's the interesting um, tidbit that, that comes up now, Kevin. I just published with literally within the last couple of weeks. So this would be uh, early March of 2022, just published an article um, on an inscription that was uh, found and published in, in late spring, I think May or May or June of 2021. And my article, uh, and th this, this inscription was found at a site called Lachish. That's one of the early sites that Joshua would have captured or conquered, um, you know, after Jericho and after Ai and after they had the fiasco at Gibeon and so forth. It's one of the, the, the cities very much, uh, you know, close to that. Um, so th the inscription that was found is from Lachish, right? And it dates to the end of the what we call the Late Bronze Age 1B, which means right around 1400, which is fitting perfectly with 1406 as the year for the entry into the land. So the inscription is in a script that is the exact same script that I write about ad infinitum in my first book, trying to powerfully demonstrate and persuasively that this is Hebrew and we can, we can translate all 15 of these inscriptions that I've tried to, to, to decipher. All 15 can be translated if that's Hebrew. And so that same script is found on this inscription at Lachish that dates to right around the time of what should be the conquest. So that presents a major, major problem for people who hold the late Exodus view, because according to them, in 1400 BC, the Israelites should be, you know, um, struggling to stay alive as slaves in Egypt. Mm. And so, um, yeah, because this is giving evidence that they're actually in the promised land, they're actually in Canaan. Exactly. And so, so um, the, the, and you know, you're, you're saying um, people are disputing whether this is actually Hebrew or not, but, uh, and, and my understanding is you're arguing that this is a form of Hebrew that was it's, it's um, when it was first coming into exist or not first coming into existence, but it's an older form of Hebrew, which uh, people then say, no, 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 this isn't Hebrew, but yet it's just the la languages change over time. Well, the language changes over time somewhat, and, but not all that much. But the script changes a lot because it started off, Kevin, 
in the 19th century BC, and it's attested as early as 1842 BC. Um, and this is the argument you make also for that that this is actually the original language prior to the to the dispersion at, at Babel. Is that correct? Oh, no, there are people who argue that. I don't. Uh, okay. I, I don't. I don't think that Hebrew was the first language. I think it came into being at the okay. time of, the of Babel. But, okay. But the script, it was originally what we call pictographic. So when you saw it as it first would have been invented, they're drawing pictures, the exact pictures that are used in hieroglyphics. Hmm. But uh, with, with Egyptian hieroglyphics, there are over 800 signs. Mm. Well, this is only 22. So the, what they handpicked, they cherry-picked 22 of those 800-plus hieroglyphs, and they turned them into the Hebrew consonantal script, meaning consonants only, no vowels. So, Interesting. So that script, and this gets back to your question, that script then over time, over the centuries, it changes. It, 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 if you don't mind, it, it evolves. Sure. And it's very logical because... Um, it takes a lot of hard work to draw careful pictures, but the more abstract you can make it, the faster you can write. Mm -hmm. So, so necessity and speed worked to, to be the, the pushing factor to cause the, the alphabetic script to adapt and become more uh, pictographic. I'm That's sorry, interesting. Less, less pictographic and more abstract. That's what Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Uh, we, we, um, in looking at things like, um, you know, the origins of, of languages and all, or the origins of um, people groups. Uh, you know, I've looked into the, the whole thing about the Chinese language and how it also changed, just like you're saying. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a similar, that's a similar event, uh, thing that's taking place here. Yes. And question about that. So, so is this a, is this a very common thing among languages that they start off more with as pictures and then they gravitate towards, um, you know, uh, abbreviations of those, those pictographs, those hieroglyphics? Well, it really, Kevin, it depends on the script, uh, what type of script it is, because th this is the this is the third. It's essentially, it's the third script that has come into being the alphabetic script. First mm -hmm. is cuneiform. Second is hieroglyphics or Egyptian hieroglyphics. And then third is this um, pictorial um, alphabetic script. But other types of scripts um, are not as pictorial and therefore they don't have as much kind of um, necessity to evolve because they can be written quicker, um, easy, you know, in an easier way. In other words, there's, there's really no, no way to improve them or cause them to be, um, you know, written faster. Right. I see what you're saying. Yeah. But this is the, the kind of script that's conducive to, to an evolution that makes it less detailed and, and careful and, and faster and more abstract. Now, if somebody wants to look up uh, this article you wrote on this particular um, this this particular finding of this script, um, where can they go to to uh, look that up? That's a great question. They can go to my academia.edu webpage, um, and um, and I know you already have the link for this. And that on that webpage are all of my eight uh, peer-reviewed articles and uh, lots of other sources and tools that I've uploaded there as a teacher, right, for, for my students and for anyone who's interested in, in learning. Um, and I also have the front matter to my two books that are up there. So you can read about my, my two books and kind of get a feel for it. And if you like it, you can always find a way to get a copy of it. But yeah, you can download it uh, for free, the article, um, the, the 20, uh, 2022 article on the Lachish Milk Bowl Ostrichen, right from my academy.edu page. Okay, so for those of you listening, that's the bibleseminary.academia.edu forward slash Douglas Petrovich. 
And um, you can read that article there. Now, um, what other evidence is there that that is very compelling uh, that the Israelites, you know, were in Egypt in the time frames that the Bible is uh, putting uh, forward? I know there was some pretty wild uh, things when I was looking at um, is Genesis history and then digging a little deeper into that. There was a lot of things um, that I was uh, completely unaware of about the evidence of, uh, you know, Joseph in Egypt and these sorts of things. Since that movie came out, um, have there been additional um, uh, evidences that have been unco- uncovered to, to uh, support this, this uh, contention? Yeah. Um, and so my book includes all the latest research. I continued to improve it, um, even in the stage where I was editing and you know, cleaning it up and, and, and re, uh, repositioning certain parts. In that whole process, I was also scouting for more um, information that's out there. Um, the newest areas of, of information that are in my book that maybe I didn't talk about too much in conferences where I've spoken and so forth is um, the, whole, um, the whole history of, th- of what are called um, four-room houses that are attested in Egypt. So the four-room house is a well-known uh, architectural design of Israelite houses in Canaan, which became mm-hmm. the land of Israel. Uh, during the entire monarchy period, right? What's what's the average Israelite living in, in Israel? It's easy, four-room house. Any archaeologist will tell you that. So it's indisputable. Well, so is this uh, all through, is that all through is, uh, Israeli history um, up until, you know, the time of Solomon and so forth? And Well, it, it, it um, let's put it this way. It's attested uh, in the time of Solomon, uh, David and Solomon, and it's attested all the way down until the Israelites go off into Babylonia in the captivity of 587 BC. Okay. So that whole time period, you will find four room houses over and over and over. You can check the excavation reports and the drawings and all that. It's indisputed. So what my book demonstrates though, is we have at least three phases of occupation at the site of Avaris in Egypt that I and others are connecting with where Jacob moved his family. You have at least three occupational phases with space between them where you have four room houses attested. And the earliest phase, Kevin, is actually the phase when Jacob would have moved there with his family. And Bryant Wood and I, he's another uh, biblical archaeologist. We're convinced. Yeah, I've interviewed him. Yeah, we're, we're convinced that that was actually Jacob's house. So, but there's, there are also now other um, plans, uh, architectural um, plans that have been published by the excavators there, the Austrian team that's there, that demonstrate we have four-room houses later. So there's a continuity of architectural design that's the exact design that is um, germane to the history of Israel. Nobody else before them has four-room houses, and even during the time they're in Canaan. So the Egyptians did not use the four-room houses? Is that? No, no. They used other, other architectural designs. Wow. Interesting. Huh? So that's a, that, so, so when that kind of information is presented to somebody who's a skeptic, um, how do they respond to that? Uh, I'm waiting to see. I mean, my, my critics haven't had time to digest uh, mm. my book yet. It's, it's, it's very detailed. It's very um, thorough and it's, uh, it's very well um, documented. So they're going to have their hands full for quite a while. <laughs> Most of my critics actually will be closet critics because it will be way safer for them just to ignore my book rather than attempting to really refute it because they know I'll go after it, right? I will respond. Yeah. 
And how long did it take you to, to gather all the information and, 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 and to write this book? Uh, years. And it, it's measured in thousands of hours. And I don't even know where, where to stop or start with those numbers. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's astronomical, really. Yeah. Well, th- this could be a, a watershed book as far as um, how it impacts really everybody. So that's exciting. For sure. Um, and and uh, have you received any um, responses from, from critics at all? Have you res- at this point yet? Has anybody uh, said anything? I'm waiting for my first responses from, from my real um, rivals out there. The ones who have made it um, loud and public that, you know, my view on all of these things is, is, you know, out to lunch that Hebrew isn't the, the language of the first alphabet and so forth. So I'm waiting to hear from them, but I've had a really overwhelming, overwhelmingly positive response from the Christian community and some within the Jewish community mm-hmm. who take the Bible seriously, literally, and um, see it as historical. That's fantastic. Yeah. I'm sure you're going to, you're going to end up on um, some of these uh, shows to, to talk this out. I, I love a, uh, you know, uh, Michael Medved, who is Jewish, I don't know if you know who he is. He's a popular radio show host, and he has had on many times um, uh, people from the Discovery Institute or uh, Dennis Prager. He should have you on. Uh, do you know who he is? No. No? Oh, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to uh, you got to you got to connect with either uh, Dennis Prager is huge and, and Michael Medved is pretty big, too. And both of them are Jewish and they're both very, very um supportive of the Bible in, in every way. So, um, uh, that, that'd be an incredible opportunity to explode for your book to just explode. So yeah, I'm going love- to, I'm, I'm going to pray about that and, and, uh, see if I can sure. send a, send a message over to them. <laughs> yeah, connect me if you're willing. Oh yeah, I I'm absolutely willing. So now you said, um, that you actually stumbled on this whole evidence of, of the Hebrews in Egypt. Um, how do you stumble on something like that? What happened? That's a great question. And and here, here's the thing. I mean, it's funny how many people um, try to assume and assert what are my motives in all of this. Yeah. I was innocently, Kevin, studying for my, um, my comprehensive exams for my PhD program at the University of Toronto. I was looking on websites for material, and all of a sudden I s- somehow stumbled across um, the, the recent um, excavational activities taking place at Avaris. And I knew that Bryant Wood had connected that site with the Israelites. I hadn't committed one way or the other, but I started, uh, you know, th- they put a lot of that on the web. And so I, I stumbled onto this and I started just studying it and seeing all of this material. And I realized that they had found things that relate to biblical history that mm-hmm. are extremely important and powerful, and they have no idea what they found. And most specifically, most powerfully was evidence for the four types of animals that the Bible describes in Exodus 11 and 12 as having been there and present at the time of the first Passover, right? The the 10th plague on Egypt. Yeah. The the killing of the firstborn. So, um, so what they found was burials and, and these were found in the palatial district, not in the residential area where they would, you'd expect there to be more animals but in the palatial district, which means where the palaces were, the king, there were three palaces at the time, not just one. So in that area, they found mass burials. In other words, multiple animals in each grave pit, right? And they're the, they're the four kind we read about in Exodus 11 and 12, dogs, cattle, sheep, and goats. And the, the, um, 
the excavators said the majority of the of the burials are sheep and goats. And the majority of the sheep and goats are in their first year of age, which when I, when I heard that, when I read that, my mind just blew. And I thought, oh my goodness, they have found some of the sacrificial animals we read about in, at the time of the first Passover over. You have to be kidding. But I knew my English Bible said that these uh, sheep and goats that were sacrificed had to be one-year-olds which of course in English means between one and two. So I checked the Hebrew and the Hebrew doesn't say that. It says literally Ben Shana, which means son of a year. And that's a technical term for less than a year. I can give you all kinds of examples where it's used in the Hebrew Bible to mean less than a year. So what I realized was our English Bibles are not intentionally for sure, but a little bit um, misleading in that term. They, they should be less than a year old, right? Should, that's how it should be written. And sure enough, we find, you know, there was this one um, mother that was giving birth and died at the time she was giving birth. So she and the baby died, um, you know, a ewe, ewe lamb. And there's, there's one um, ram that was killed by a blow to the back of the head from a blunt instrument, which shows that it was killed purposefully, right? It's not just, you know, a lamb doesn't bump the back of its head and die. Um, it, it's not, it's not chance and it's not, it's not killing, um, in, in the usual ways. So, so all of this shows that, um, these are examples that, that relate to this, uh, this event of the sheep and the goats that are being sacrificed. And where did they find these? These were found in pits, um, as they were excavating in the, in the area of the palaces at Avaris, which is biblical Ramses. Wow. That's amazing. And, and so how many of these uh, animals, uh, is this like a mass graveyard of animal animals or what is that? Well, it's, it, I don't know if they ever gave a final number, maybe in their final excavation report, we'll see a, a total number, but it seemed to be, um, you know, over 30 and, you know, under a hundred somewhere in there, but I'm not sure exactly where that would be. Okay. And, and this is the kind of stuff that you saw. And, and when you say you stumbled on it, you saw this, you saw the connection here and that's what, yeah. Uh, caused you to decide to look into it further. Yes, Kevin. And, and the, the little pottery evidence that was there is pottery that can be datable, uh, it can be dated to the reigns of Thutmose III and Amenhotep II. And as I've proven already in my 2006 journal article, Amenhotep II is the only pharaoh who meets all of the biographical requirements of the Exodus pharaoh. And so I, I knew we're at the right site and we're at the right time and it just fits like a glove. So that's when I said, oh my goodness, there could be some amazing things found here if I can research it um, more. Because what I concluded was, well, if we have evidence of Israelites there in the very year of the Exodus, and they were there 430 years, you'd think there'd be evidence that they were there for a lot longer than just that last year. Yeah. So, so I went out, I went on a research uh, expedition, if you will, through all of the sources to study, to see if I could find uh, more material. And it just happened that God allowed for me to have Middle Egyptian hieroglyphics and, and Late Egyptian hieroglyphics as the, um, the, uh, the major, uh, yeah, the, I'm sorry, the first minor of my PhD. So hieroglyphics is the first minor of my PhD. So I could study ancient hieroglyphic writings to learn things that not many other people can. Yeah. Wow. That is really, that is really amazing. And, um, you know, 
is there is there ongoing evidence? Um, I know that when we we looked at is Genesis history um, and what everything that was done there, and there was the evidence that was found about Joseph being in Egypt and these sorts of things, and then um, you said that Amenhotep the second is the pharaoh of the the actual Exodus, where Moses is visiting him as they're going out. Um, is there evidence of you know? Um, and and you said right there, you, I mean, there's evidence with the Passover lamb, but as far as the plagues are concerned, um, is there any evidence for that? Is there evidence of the, the, you, there was some, a movie that came out called the search for the real Mount Sinai. It, it got, got a lot of attention. Um, do you believe that, uh, there's evidence for all of that? Is that stuff that it can actually be established? Well, it, it's very different when you go from places of residence to, mm-hmm. to, um, areas where being nomadic, right? It's a completely different world. Mm. And so w- when you see people categorically talking about the place where the crossing of the um, Sea of Reeds was, and um, this is where Mount Sinai is, now you're off the reservation, you're off the map from careful archaeology mm. to, um, to conjecture. So gotcha. there is no firm evidence. And this whole idea of uh, you know, objects found in, in water bodies that are um, wheels of the chariots from, from the Exodus. That is the biggest joke in the world. Okay. <laughs> certainly would have been covered by sil- um, the process of silting yeah. over the course of 30, you know, 3,450 plus years. So gotcha. there's no way that, that this could be, you know, chariot wheels. It, it's, it's very likely that where they crossed the point of the Sea of Reeds, it's now above water. It, it very well may be above water nowadays because, because time has given us a much receded sea as you go from, uh, from the, what originally was the, um, the Red Sea all the way to the Mediterranean. At one point, they were connected. And as mm. time went along, the receding got you know, further and further and further. So where, gotcha. they, where the Israelites crossed, it could be you know, land today. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And then what about the plagues? Um, is there any evidence, um, uh, archeological evidence, solid evidence, as far as the plagues are concerned? Only for this 10th plague and the animals that I'm talking about that I've come in contact with. So I haven't found any evidence of, of any of the other plagues, but most of the other plagues are either events that happen in the sky. Um, you know, they're, they're environmental um, yeah. issues or they involve, um, life forms that are organic material and they die and decompose, you know, frogs and so forth. Sure. Sure. And locusts. So it's going to be really hard archeologically to, to expect to find evidence of any of these other plagues, but it just so happens that buried animals from the 10th plague, that's a lot more plausible, a lot more possible to, to, Uh but there's not anything that's been found in, in hieroglyphics or Egyptian, uh, record keeping uh, of any sort in that regard. There is one disputed um, uh, papyrus manuscript. It's called the Ipuwer papyrus. Most scholars believe that the events of that described on the papyrus date back to the 13th dynasty, which is way before Moses's lifetime, which is the 18th dynasty. In fact, Joseph is from the 12th dynasty. Um, But some scholars are convinced that the the Ipuwer papyrus, uh, the events of it, uh, go back to the 18th dynasty and the, and the time that, that I would connect to the, um, uh, the Exodus. And so there's, a, there's actually an article in that same, um, in that same um, volume 
of Bible and Spade, where my article is um, on the Lachish Milkbowl Ostrakan. There's an article on the Epuwer papyrus where a friend of mine named Titus Kennedy tries to prove that the Epuwer papyrus dates to that time. And the Epuwer papyrus describes some, not all, but some events going on in Egypt that you could possibly connect to some of the plagues that we read about of the 10 plagues. So it's, you know, it's, it's conceivable. If, if, it, if it does date to the 18th dynasty, it's conceivable that that document refers to some of the plagues on Egypt that are recorded in the Bible. Okay. Okay. Um, and then um, what, what, uh, what are the Hebrews referred to in the, uh, you know, in Egypt, I, I read something where you, you mentioned, uh, I don't know how you pronounce it. Habaru. Um, yes. Now what, what is that? How, how does that relate to the Hebrews? Oh, great question. Let's, let's go back to Abraham for a second. So when Moses introduces us to this character, this figure named, uh, and he was called Abram at the time, his name changes later. So when we, when we're introduced to Abram, Moses says that he is the Hebrew right? It says, Abram, the Hebrew, which means he's not the forefather of the Hebrews. He's not. Neither is Jacob, his great-grandson. They are not, neither of them. What it means is there's a progenitor that goes back further in time, and Abraham simply derived from him. So who are these Hebrews from whom Abram um, derived? Well, the Bible um, refers to, in Genesis 10, when it's giving this, this, this flow, this genealogical record of, uh, of the movement from Noah all the way down to Abram, it mentions one person of very um, great importance. His name is Abar, right? Abar. And every Egyptologist and ancient Near Eastern scholar who knows the languages will tell you that the, um, that the Habiru are equal to the Apiru. Right, Habiru, the Habiru is with Akkadian language, and then Apiru is essentially the Egyptian version of that word. Well, the word Apiru um, contains an uh, initial guttural, just like um, the Hebrew word for Hebrews or Hebrew. And so it's very plausible that what we see in Egyptian is similar to what we see in Hebrew for the mention of the name Eber. So Eber is the, is the forefather of Abraham, after whom um, their family name um, derives. So uh, we, we know that there are lots of Habiru running around in the ancient Near Eastern world at the end of the uh, uh, third millennium BC and at the start of the second millennium BC. But where do they come from? Well, I would say they all come from Abir. And Abram is simply one of the descendants who comes from Abir. He's just the one who becomes the most famous and has the most ink written about him. Mm. So, so um, what happens then is, let, let's fast forward in time now. We're, we're, we're going much further, you know, much closer to our time. Um, to the time of the, after the, the uh, Exodus and after the conquest, Joshua has died. Later in that same century, a little bit later, a few decades later, we have a bunch of tablets written, and they're written by petty kings in Canaan who are being attacked mainly by these people called the, they call them Habiru. And so this is the, the middle of the 14th century BC. So this is, you know, around 1350, you know, give or take um, a few decades. Um, these Habiru are attacking these petty kings in their, their city-states. Well, who are these people? 
Well, um, the, the mightiest um, um, ruler of one of the petty states in Canaan is the king, king of Chatzor. I was part of the dig at Chatzor years ago. And he is the only one in these letters. They're called the Amarna letters. They were found in Egypt uh, and they were, they were in the care of the textual archive of the scribes who oversaw the, um, the work uh, or, or the reign of Akhenaten. He's also known as Amenhotep IV, uh, the Egyptian king of the 14th century BC. Is so, Aka, is, uh, sorry to interrupt, is Akhenaten, um, wasn't there a pharaoh who was a monotheist? That's the guy. Okay. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, so, I, I had a, the funniest thing. I, I had to take a credit um, at UCSD when I was um, in, in uh, college and I, I, I took a class on Egyptology just because I thought it would be interesting from a biblical perspective. And that guy's name came up and I just latched on to him because he was the monotheist. And I just, I never forgot that. And I wrote a whole paper on him. It was very interesting to me. Um, do you think there's, I, I kind of got you off track here, but do you think there's any um, connection there biblically as to why he would have become a monotheist? That's a great question. And late Exodus people will, they have a problem here because for them, Akhenaten comes before the Exodus. But for me, uh, the Exodus comes before Akhenaten, right? And the confrontation, not just the Exodus, the confrontation between the God of Moses and the gods of the Egyptians. Mm. And who mm. wins? The yeah. one God of the, of the Hebrews defeats the, the, the multitude of gods of Egypt, right? So the Egyptian people know in this big time, um, war of the gods, their gods lose and Israel's God wins. So it's very plausible that Akhenaten got his idea of monotheism hmm. from the Israelites, that would it, that idea would have been passed down to him from the 15th century to the 14th century BC, and he would have kind of turned it into his own form of religion. Interesting. Oh, that's very interesting, huh? Um, sorry to get you off track there. So back to the, the Habaru and yeah. uh, what was happening there. So 14th century BC, we have um, Chatzor, the biggest city. It's the only city in Canaan where the ruler is called a king. The other, the other rulers of, of Canaan only refer to themselves as rulers, but they refer to the king of Chatzor as a king. The only other person they call a king is the king of Egypt, right? So this is a big guy. He's a big player. He's, he's the bully on the block, mm. uh, the king of Chatzor. Well, what happens is over the course of the Amarna letters, um, we have enough information, historical information, uh, fortuitously enough to show how the king of Khatsor, um, his allegiance falters from the king of Egypt to, uh, to a, a submission to these Habiru. Hmm. So that, that begs the question, if you have this mighty city in Canaan that has, you know, thousands and thousands of people and this, this uh, powerful kingdom that that is more powerful than any other in Canaan and how is it scholars tell us that the that the Habiru who who were attacking the petty kings of Canaan in the 14th century BC they tell us these are these are um, thieves and brigands right mm. well how well um, how is it that thieves can become powerful enough and and organized enough that they would attack the greatest city in Canaan and cause its ruler to submit to them as opposed to submitting to the king of Egypt. It's imp impossible. And one final moment on this, Kevin, um, there is um, an inscription written by the scribes of Amenhotep II in the 15th century. Uh, so right after the Exodus, 
they record um, his, his second Asiatic campaign, and they refer to about 100,000 captives that were found on this um, expedition to, uh, into, into uh, the Levant. To it was basically a glorified slave run. Why would you need 100,000 slaves? Well, hello, if the Israelites are your slave base and they've left Egypt and they're the machinery to make things work, you know, you, you, can't, you can't run your car if you take the engine out of it, okay? The body of the car looks great, but it can't do a thing to move you. Yeah. So, so the Israelites were, were that mechanism for Egypt. So during this glorified slave run, of uh, where uh, about a hundred thousand captives were, were 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 lynched from Canaan, it says that three thousand six hundred of them were Abiru, the Egyptian name for the Akkadian word Habiru. Oh wow! So that being the case, um, shortly after the Exodus, in the very same year of the Exodus, in in November of that year, and the Exodus happened in April. In November of that year, they capture hundred thousand slaves. Three thousand six hundred are. Um, are Apiru. Those very probably are Hebrews who left Moses's command and they decided we're not waiting to go into Canaan. We're going now. They yeah. moved into Canaan. They settled down and God gave them a big fat surprise. The king of Egypt came along and snatched them and took them away back into slavery in Egypt and probably gave them a much worse fate than their compatriots who had to wander around in the desert for 40 years. Wow, that is that is interesting. Now, um, you know, a lot of people say they complain about um, the idea that there would have been around two million um, Hebrews who left Egypt and were with Moses, and a lot of them say, "Well, there's not even enough room to to move around with two million two million people." Um, how do you respond to that complaint? Well. We do have ancient armies that travel in at least uh, a million, you know, so it it, it is plausible. Um, yeah, it's harder for an army, um, but um, but it's not impossible. There are two views as to what the numbers are for the Israelites. Either they could be um, 600,000 males or whatever it is, uh, 6,000 tribes or 600 or 6,000 tribes. What, I forget now which that would be. But um, if you take it that they are 600,000 males, it means probably you have a realistic body of two, 2 million people. Well, mm -hmm. bottom line is you, you could have that many, especially if they're living in different parts of Egypt at the time. So all of the people would have left the various sites where they lived. They would have joined the, the, you know, the leadership under uh, Moses and Joshua, and they would have, you know, followed the Israelites, um, you know, off into the desert. So it's, it's certainly plausible. You, you can't say it can't happen. Um, it's really hard to prove that you can't do this, but yeah. at the end of the day, what you have is this, you have a people who are supernaturally guided by the spirit of God who manifests himself in this, um, pillar of fire and, you know, in this, in, in this cloud, right? So, um, God is providing for them. He, he gives them food in the desert from, uh, you know, falling from the sky. It, it, it drops to the ground and it turns into manna. So this can only work if it's, if it's God behind it. Mm -hmm. So with God, you know, with man, it may be impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Yeah. No problem. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. That's great. And then, um, 
and I can't remember offhand if this was something that came up in the is Genesis history movie, but it just uh, struck me as something very interesting. Um, they made the case that, or, or, or I've heard this case made before that, um, you know, all the Egyptian boys were killed during the, the plague, um, the final plague, the, the young boys were killed. And then many of the Egyptian men went out to fight and ended up dying in order to try to bring the, the Hebrews back into Egypt. And um, I've heard that this left a gaping hole in, in um, the Egyptian, the male population of the Egyptians at the time. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Is, there, is, is that uh, something that um, there is a historical evidence to support that? There is historical events um, uh, that can support that, maybe indirectly. Um, for one thing, uh, when, when Amenhotep II took over the throne from his father, Egypt had come to its height in all of its history from the beginning of time until today. Egypt was never more powerful. They, they, he turned them into one of two superpowers and the greater of the two, because under, under the father of the Exodus Pharaoh, Thutmose III, the Egyptians went all the way to the Euphrates River, right, through southern Levant, in, through the northern Levant and eastward to the to the Euphrates, and they sacked cities down the river as they went downstream. Hmm. So they were as powerful as powerful can be. And if you check the Theban tombs from this time, from the 18th dynasty, the reigns of um, Thutmose III and Amenhotep II, you will see displays um, painted on the tombs of wealth pouring into Egypt like it never did in all its history. Hmm. Right. So you have evidence of this great wealth. Well. Um, Thutmose III launched 17 campaigns into Asia. Amenhotep II launched two. And the second one was in the year of the Exodus. It's the one I told you about. It's in, in the same year of the Exodus, but in November, a time when kings don't go out into battle as the Bible describes. Yeah. So, so after that, Kevin, after that, there's a complete change in military activity and foreign policy. There are no more imperialistic uh, ventures to gain land and gain goods and gain gold, right? Mm, they mm. don't happen. And, and up until this time, there were no political marriages because Egypt had the upper hand. They didn't have to offer their daughters in political mm. marriage when they had the yeah. upper hand. Then after the Exodus, you see no more campaigns and you see this flurry of, of uh, political marriages, right? That demonstrate that the Egyptians know that they're in an inferior position and they have to marry up in order to have peace in the ancient world, right? Wow. So, hmm. so there's all of that. And then there's one other thing. And I described this in my book. There is an inscription that most people have, even scholars have no clue about, but it's published. And I refer to the publication where, it, where it's, um, um, you know, where, where it's found. And, and I actually try to improve the translation in the Egyptian text. But that, that inscription is, is from the reign of Amenhotep II. And it describes... A, a, um, a, a, an edict that's issued by the king. What edict? The edict was that all of his courtiers were to go out and destroy the gods. What does that mean? It means you go to the shrines and the temples and wherever you see an idol that's whatever, two feet, three feet high, you take it and you rip it to shreds and you destroy wow. it. Why would <laughs> this ever be done in Egypt? Yeah. And there's, there's, one, there's one god who's mentioned by name. On, on, on that inscription. And the rest of it is kind of broken off and we, we can't see all of the wording, but this God is very clear there. And that's the God Amun-Ra. Who's Amun-Ra? 
He's a composite God that consists of Amun plus the sun god Ra. So it happens that in the reigns of Thutmose III and Amenhotep II, Amun-Ra became the god connected with the victories that were, that were given to the Egyptian kings by the gods um, in their Asiatic campaigns, right? So they would come back from their campaign and they would give glory to Amun-Ra. So for Amun, Amenhotep II, who was constantly giving glory to, to Amun-Ra for the victories in Asia, for him to turn around and, and command his courtiers to destroy idols to Amun-Ra, oh my goodness, that's telling us that he no longer has faith in the God who gave him victories in Asia. Wow. That's huge. That is really huge. And what a, what a testament too, to the truth of uh, Yahweh, right? The, the God of the Bible. So the God of the Hebrews. Um, that's amazing. And, um, you know, is there still a lot, we're, we're just about out of time here, but is there still a lot to be uncovered in Egypt? Is there still a lot to be, uh, a lot of, a lot of headway that could can be made to, to learn additional things about this sort of stuff? Great question. And the answer is maybe, I, I don't even know myself. If, if I did, I would probably be going broke um, just <laughs> studying the manuscripts and studying the sources and studying the archaeological records to find them. But, um, but there is that possibility. And that's why I'm encouraging, uh, especially young people out there who may be interested in, in history, and, and they already have a love for the Bible, uh, that maybe God would be using them to love these uh, two, I'm sorry, to wed these two loves together, like he did with me, and, and give you the passion and the drive to study the, the ancient evidence and look for such things. And I'm convinced, Kevin, I can't point to them. I'm convinced that they are out there waiting for the hardworking people to discover them. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that is, and it, it has such a big impact on people as they study this. You know, I think it just cracks the door of people's hearts and gives them a chance to go back to the Bible and say, Hey, you know what? Yeah. I need to give this a second look. I need to really um, take some time to, to get a better understanding of what, what, uh, the real history is. So thanks for everything you're doing. Uh, Dr. Petrovich, it's amazing. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. For those of you listening, if you want more information about Dr. Doug Petrovich, the Bible seminary.academia.edu forward slash Douglas Petrovich. And, um, he's doing all kinds of amazing things. And, uh, if you have the, the privilege of, uh, are you, are you still, um, teaching uh, professor? Yeah, I'm still teaching. Okay. Where, and now where are you currently at? I'm currently at the Bible seminary in Katy, Texas. Okay. There you go. So there's your chance. If you want to sit, uh, sit under somebody who's really, um, on the cutting edge of this kind of stuff. Uh, there you go. Katy, Texas. So, um, he wrote the author of the world's oldest alphabet Hebrew as the language of the proto-consonantal script and Hebrews, his latest book, new evidence for Israelites in Egypt from Joseph to the Exodus 2021. Um, check those out. They'll be a huge blessing to you. And, um, I'm going to see if I can't, uh, uh, get you on uh, Dennis Prager or, or Michael Medved or something. Cause uh, I know that they would love that. They would eat this stuff up. So thanks again, uh, Dr. Petrovich. And um, you have a great week. You too. Thank you, Kevin. Okay. Take care. We'll see you guys all next week. My website's educateforlife.org. You can check out all kinds of useful information on there that will help equip you to be able to defend your faith and to be able to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those around you. Okay. God bless you. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.